Welcome, everyone. Welcome to uh, that part of our service where we reflect uh, upon a part of Scripture. We've been going through the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus called the letter to the Ephesians. And we are in the second chapter, and we're finishing it up. And so we are now going to read and reflect upon Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. And here to read the Scripture for us is Erica. So our scripture reading today is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Um, I rarely use movie illustrations, but Graham last week inspired me to try. Um, we have different uh, movie tastes. But I want to tell you about a movie that I saw several years ago that is itself quite an old movie, quite kind of one of those minor hipster artsy movies that uh, I don't usually watch. As a matter of fact, I tried to watch it once and found it confusing and incoherent and really quirky, and so I put it aside. But then friends of ours invited Sue and I over to watch this movie And I told them, I don't, you know, I'd like to come and see you guys, but I don't really like the movie. They said, well, we'll explain to you how you're going to enjoy the movie. So we got, we got to the movie and just before we kind of hit play, they stopped and they contextualized us. They said, this movie is a riff of an old Greek myth called the Odyssey. It's not really about the 1920s life in Mississippi. It's a modern Cone Brothers version of Ulysses or the Odyssey. And with that lens through which I could watch the movie, and I had to quickly Wikipedia myself up, get caught up on the Odyssey in the story, I was able to see the movie through a new lens. And what was incoherent and confusing became coherent and profound. What was quirky became witty and funny. What was good became brilliant. O brother, where art thou? became a very enjoyable film to watch. And if you want to watch it, most of you were not born yet when it was out, you should, 
Know that lens, because the lens makes the movie come alive. The lens through which we see things is the lens that helps shape the way we understand them, interpret them, feel about them, and respond to them. The lens shapes you. And if you don't think that's true, those of you who have had the pleasure of watching The Usual Suspects, another one of those movies, you know that it's a whodunit that's terribly interesting and confusing. And at the very end, the director in the dialogue gives you the hermeneutical key to unlock the whole meaning of the movie. And you go, oh my gosh, I never saw that. And now with that key, I want to go back and re-understand the whole movie because the lens through which you understand it shapes the way you interpret and respond to it. Here Paul, with a mixed crowd of Jews and non-Jewish Christians, knows that they have a problem. They are bringing the keys to which they understand life as non-Jewish people or as Jewish people into their life together as Christians, and those keys have been causing all over the Christian world division because in that culture, Jews and non-Jews despised each other and were divided from each other. And so he wants to give them a lens through which to see it. To the Jews, and Grammy did a great job of it last week, he said, you're like the usual suspects. I'm giving you a key now about Christ and what Christ means to the whole of your history as a Jewish people. I'm unlocking the story in a new way so that you can really understand what your Bible actually meant, what your story as the Jewish people actually meant. You thought that God mostly related to you by works. The 613 commands, the mitzvot of the Old Testament, they were how God evaluated you and related to you, and you were wrong. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's last week, that no one should boast. And now this week, he turns to the non-Jewish audience, which are called Gentiles, and he says to them, I'm going to give you kind of a, oh brother, where art thou? I'm going to give you the key early on because you're brand new to Christianity. You haven't inhabited the story of the Jewish people. You, you didn't misinterpret it. You just don't know it. But you need to know the story that you're walking into. And so I'm going to give you a gospel lens through which to shape a gospel-shaped life by telling you who you were, who you are, and who you are to become. Who you were, who you are, and who you are to become. Firstly, who you were, starting in verse 11. He says, remember at what time you Gentiles, you people who are not Jewish, you were called the uncircumcision. <laughs> that was a derisive phrase Jews used. For those who were called the circumcision in the flesh by hands, there's the division. Remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ouch. <laughs> this is not good news. Actually, it's the basis for good news. Paul asked them to remember. It's the only command in this whole passage. It's in the present active imperative. It means continuously remember this. This is what you need to remember. You were at one time divided from the Jewish people. You were at one time separated from Christ. You did not believe in Jesus, therefore you were separated from him. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're separated from Him. 
You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That means the, the people of God, the people among whom God dwelt. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and were without God in the world. What is Paul doing? He's reminding these Jewish Christians here that they're just as badly off before they become Christians as Jewish people were. They were actually farther away. He seems to be heading off an argument that we can see arising because we see a version of it in our own culture in our day. And that argument is something like this. Well, we're not as bad as those Jewish people. We didn't have enough information. So our not believing in Jesus isn't as blameworthy. We, we don't have the same revelation and experience of God as they did. We hear that all the time, don't you? Whenever I'm talking to people who are... Um, in our city, sooner or later it comes up this question. Well, what about the teenager who grew up in, in a Hindu culture in a small village in India? Can God blame them for not knowing about him? What, what, what about someone who grew up in an atheist country like China? How can God blame them for not believing in him? And the gospel says to us now, as it said to them then, now, no, you don't get to use that argument. God has implanted enough knowledge in the heart of every single human being that they know or should know and recognize that he exists. Ignorance of God is your excuse, but it is not a fact. Enough is known about God. And Paul says this to the Roman church to make us without excuse. Listen to what he says to the Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown himself to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, creation itself. Therefore, they are without excuse. What Paul argues in Romans and what he implies here is that we suppress an innate knowledge of God. We deflect it, we distort it, we reshape it for our own purposes but we cannot legitimately deny that we knew God existed. So if you're here and you're still not sure where you are spiritually about God or whatever, I need to ask you this. Why are you here? What brought you here? What questions, what inclinations, what longings have set you here? Can you look at the beauty and the order and the glory of our universe and realize how unexpected it is, how physicists tell us how unbelievably rare we are, and not begin to wonder why we are here and why a recent PhD told me that most PhD students now are theists because the order and wonder of the world cries out for some kind of divine mind that made it. Can you look at your personalities? And we have a variety of personalities here. Some of us have better personalities than others. Uh, I'll not claim a good one. Uh, however, do you really think that an impersonal creation, a rock or a machine, can create something with personality? Because that's the argument of our secular culture, that time, space, chance, and an impersonal universe made us with personalities. Where did personality come from? Can you look at all the changed lives in the history of Christianity, of people who've had addictions broken and their lives radically changed by becoming Christians and say, I, I don't see any data. 
God exists. All of us here in this room have the innate knowledge that he exists. We have data in our universe, in our nature, in the changed lives of people, in the history of our human existence, in the resurrection of the dead from Jesus. There's all kinds of information. And so these non-Jewish people, they can't claim a pass. No, you're far away from God in your natural state. Now, Paul, you note, is using relational language here. God is far from you. God is alienated from you. The problem of the gospel is at its heart relational. There is a relational separation from us because we have rebelled against God. We spurned his offer to be our father and said, no, you go be a stranger to us. I cannot take away your ability to be my creator and my judge, but I will remove myself from allowing you to be my father and the one in whom I trust. In my first year of being a lawyer, I had a very small case, which is what you usually get as a first-year lawyer. I went to small claims. Well, it was divisional court, but it was a very small claim. My client, in the midst of a very volatile personal and business relationship with a partner, had put on the back of his business card, I owe you $4,000, signed it and given it to him just to calm things down. Things had gotten better. The whole business relationship had changed. They'd sort of forgotten about that IOU, and then it went completely south. Well, his partner sued him for the $4,000 because of the business card, IOU with a signature. That was it. And so I went in to defend him, and I explained the, the, the evolution of the business and personal relationship that they had had, how it had gone, and how it had changed since that IOU had been signed multiple times. And I said, you can't call that valid contextually. And the judge just looked at me, and he said, counsel, this is not a family meeting. This is a court of law. Your client bound himself by a legal document, an IOU, to pay a debt of $4,000 and he signed it. That is a legal relationship. And I see no legal documents nullifying or changing that relationship today. This debt is a legal obligation. And while I agree with you that there are intense personal and business relationships between these two and that they have fluctuated, the law is the law. A debt is a debt and it must be paid. Case closed. Men and women, at that moment, the judge was impartial. He was objective. He was pitiless because it was a court of law, and he was right to do all of those things. A debt is a debt, and this is you and me. This is everyone who has not become a Christian yet we are guilty before God of going our own way. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have gone, every one, to our own way. And in so doing, in rejecting God as a father, we have incurred a debt. A debt that we must pay. And God, who we've spurned as a father, will come to us as the impartial judge. And he will say, your debt must be paid. And if Jesus hasn't paid it for you, 
you will pay that debt forever. The payment of that debt is called hell, a place of evil and anguish, a place where the presence of God is absent, and that absence is his judgment. And in that absence, all restraint on the dark, evil side of humans gets removed. All we have is humans at their most selfish, at their darkest, at their cruelest, their most oppressive. Racism, sexism, bullying, marginalizing, all of that will happen unblemished, unstopped, and it will be so much greater than we can imagine because whoever's leading there is encouraging that behavior, the dark forces of evil. This world will be so dark that everyone who is there in anguish will want to leave it. They'll say, is there a maid? to get me out of hell. But there is no maid. It is forever. That is why he says, you are without hope because you are without God. Paul is saying, we all need God. We all need hope. But the only way we can get it is by grace. Why is Paul saying this? Well, firstly, because it's true. This is the identity of every person before they become a Christian and every person who never becomes a Christian. But secondly, men and women, this is foundational to a gospel-shaped life. God wants us to be shaped like clay in a potter's hand. And he's saying, the two hands that I have for you to shape you as clay into this glorious work of art that I want to make you, this is the first one. This is who you are. But you know what we want to do as clay? We want that hand to shape it a certain way. So what we found out last week is a Jewish person coming into Christianity may accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, but because they've been so steeped in the 613 commandments and and the rigorous obeying of them, they're going to want that hand to shape Christianity into a Christianity with a lot of laws to be obeyed, with a lot of performance treadmills to run on. Exactly what Graham spoke about last week that God has torpedoed in the gospel. And so last week was Paul saying, don't try and move the hand to shape you a certain way. But men and women, there's another danger, and this is for most of us. You see, in the Roman Empire, with so many different religions and so many different beliefs, it was easy to take a rather a la carte, multicultural approach to your spirituality. I'm going to believe in that God, and I'll also believe in that God, and I'll take my ethics from that level of spirituality, but I like this part of that one, and you schmuck them all up into this a la carte buffet where I take a little of this, a little of that. You know, you're like the Mandarin or something, and you're, I'll take this, and I'll take a little, ah, uh, no, that's not very good, and you're making your choice. But, so you become a Christian from that culture. How do you want to be shaped? Well, I'd like to be shaped in a kind of an a la carte Christianity where I can take a little of this and I can take a little of that. The Corinthian church in a very sexually permissive and resume-addicted culture. They wanted to import both of those into their Christianity. And so the men were having sex with temple prostitutes and they were expecting all of their leaders to have these shiny resumes and brilliant rhetorical gifts. The Galatian church led by Jewish Christians, wanted the obedience to the Jewish law embedded in there. You see, the temptation for the clay to tell the shaper how to shape it. 
And so what Paul is doing is saying to you and I something quite profound, and that is this, how you enter Christianity with your cultural baggage and your own inclinations and your own family of origin often shapes how you want God to shape your life. If you come in from a highly performance-oriented background, you're going to kind of be comfortable with a performance-oriented version of the gospel, which isn't the gospel at all. If you come into Christianity from a more intellectual approach and you've been thinking about different philosophies and, and, and the gospel is something interesting to you, and, and, and well, then the gospel becomes inf good information and you finally are right about reality and who the true God is. But then your Christianity can often be very intellectual and you want it to be very coherent, but it doesn't get into your heart. If you enter into Christianity with an a la carte, culturally sophisticated cultural background, you will struggle with the rigors of following Jesus when the culture pushes back. You will want Christianity to be more relaxed, more inclusive, more sophisticated if you're in that kind of a culture. And we are. In this case, in this passage, if you come to a Christianity with a place of ethnic division and there's a fair bit of quiet or even open racism in your culture, you're going to want to shape Christianity that allows for a certain amount of ethnic division and racism. Paul is saying, we're like a piece of clay and we need shaping into the shape of the gospel, but we need to let the potter do the shaping. And the first thing the potter wants to say is, all of you, I don't care what color you are, what ethnic background you are, what religious background you are, I don't care how rigorous you've been be religiously before you became a Christian or how slack you've been, we're all shaped by the same fundamental hand which says you were lost and far away. When I was uh, newly married, I had all these great expectations of this wonderful, trouble-free marriage with my wonderful wife. She's still wonderful. Uh, nothing has changed in that regard, but my life has not been as trouble-free as I had expected. Somewhere in about our first year, I went to an um, eye appointment, and my eye doctor, uh, who I normally go to, was a bit too busy. He'd overbooked himself, and with apologies, he punted me over to his partner in the eye clinic, who was his wife, and Dr. Kamachi Wong saw me and she was incredibly rigorous. She, he was a little more relaxed. She was more, I'm sorry, you need to go get your eyes dilated. I, I had not had them dilated by her husband. I require it. So I go get them dilated. I'm there much longer. And she looks into my eye. And because it's dilated, she sees more deeply into my eye. And she sees something. And she says, I need to send you to an eye specialist. So I go to an ophthalmologist a couple weeks later. And the ophthalmologist goes, there's something in your eye. I'm going to send you to the eye care center at Vancouver General the cancer specialists. And there, a New York and San Francisco and Vancouver doctor, they all look at me, and then the San Francisco doctor ushers them all out, and he closes the, the door, and he says, you have cancer. It wasn't good news, but it was needed news. I needed to know where I was so it could help shape the future that I needed to have. I needed surgery radiation surgery, an implanting of a radioactive mini contact lens to nuke my eye for a week. I wouldn't have known. It wasn't good news, but it was needed news. Men and women, this isn't necessarily good news, 
on its face, but it's needed news. We all need grace. We all need God. So I want to tell you now, quick application, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, and if it's primarily for you right now an intellectual pursuit, that's normal. That's typical, but it's telling you a little bit of where you are in your spiritual journey. Because in the spiritual journey towards Christianity, it always almost starts with, is there a God and what do I think about him? But when it gets deeper, it goes, there is a God. What does he think about me? That's the next step. When you realize that there's a pure and infinitely good God who hates selfishness and evil with the purity that pure love gives, and you know that only God can have that kind of purity, that your own selfishness, your own desire for autonomy and personal glory and advancement and comfort puts you far from him then you're closer to the heart of your spiritual journey because it's becoming more personal. You're realizing that God is very personal indeed. You begin to realize that without God, there won't be any hope. And without hope, there isn't any you that you want to be part of. You see, all the love and all the joy and all the happiness that you experience are gifts from a personal God who wants relationship with you. And if you're a Christian... Know all of that and know more than that. That is who you were. Everything that you get from God will be by grace, as a gift, unconditionally done by the kindness of a God of infinite love. Paul is trying to connect you, who are Christians, emotionally with the rhythms of the song of the gospel. It begins in this minor key but it ends in a glorious key of hope. So let's look at that now. The second point, who you now are. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here we go. Hear the good news, everybody. The great news. You've been brought near. The alienation from God brought by your selfishness has been torpedoed by Jesus himself. How? By him shedding his blood for you. All the debt we owe to God, all the wrong that we've ever done that offends him, all the selfishness we've done that alienates us from him is paid for. The debt has been paid in full. The dividing wall of hostility between us and God and therefore also between us and each other has been abolished, it says here, by the death of Jesus. Listen, please. He himself, not his message, is our peace. The gospel is not a way of teaching for you to subscribe to. It's not just good advice. It's primarily good news. It is a person, Jesus who did everything for you. You know, in Jewish religious life, there was a, a temple that demonstrated this. At the center of Jewish religious life was a temple, and at the center of the temple was something called the Most Holy Place, where God communed with humanity, and a high priest went in once a year and once a year only to atone for the sins by the blood of a lamb. And between that holy place, Most Holy Place, and the rest of the temple, there was a veil to say, God and us are alienated by our sin. And Jesus Christ, 
came down and pierced the veil. He came down into humanity and became one of us so that he could be our substitute. He became our champion who lived the life we could not live, the life of perfect obedience to God with no selfishness, no sin, no wrong, pure love. And by his unconditional, undeserved action of going to the cross, because of the unconditional, undeserved love of God who asked him to do it, because of their unconditional, undeserved love for you and me and the desire to bring us near, he went and he died for us. My cancer was killed by the insertion of a little contact lens that was radioactive to that cancer that killed it. Your debt to God was paid, and the cancer of your sin was obliterated by the insertion of God, of his own son, Jesus, and then the pouring out of his own life on the cross as a substitutionary offering, his blood for your guilt. Something happened to death in that moment. Tim Keller, my mentor, said Jesus Christ went to death on our behalf, but in so doing, he blew a hole out the back, as it were. Death has no more power in us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, our great captain Jesus Christ has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world and bid us come inside. Men and women, we have been brought near. And we've been brought near to each other because he has ushered in an era of grace where our whole relationship to God has changed. You see, until that time, until that moment, and since that time, every religion I know of except Christianity has operated on these rules. Obey this deity, and this deity will accept you. As a corollary until the time of Jesus, people who believed in these deities were allowed to look down upon others who didn't, and division was created between humans. At that time and since that time, God has revealed to the world that the operating system of life with God is run by grace, not our works. Grace and grace alone. The gospel says God accepts you because of Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you and me, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's by grace. Every religion says, do this, and you will earn the deity's favor. The gospel says you've already got God's favor as a gift through Jesus. Now go and enjoy. Show the world how much love he gave you. And in this new era, this world of Jews and non-Jews, of the world of everyone from every tribe and tongue and nation has been changed. It's no longer men and women. It's the way we see it. It's no longer competing ethnic groups and competing racial groups and, and, and competing nation states, all vying with one another for power. No. The new era of grace does this. There are two kinds of people, and each group is unified. There is the group that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they are unified in being estranged from God. And there's a new group, a group that believes in Jesus, who've been brought near and unified with Jesus and have been united together fully and indivisibly. In this era of grace, we're not just one people, though. He says we are one new man. 
we are so united, so together, that we are literally members of each other. Look around. You're an arm, look at your elbow. <laughs> You're a knee, look at your thigh. We're members, one of one, one another. This is the truth. You've been brought near by the gospel. Now, become who you are. Paul gives us a couple of implications that we should understand here. He says, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Everyone has the same access to God. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Secondly, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone. Now he uses cornerstone to switch metaphors. Thirdly, in whom the whole structure being joined together growing grows into a holy temple of the Lord. There you go. Your citizens, your family members, and you're a temple together. Your fellow citizens. To be fellow citizens means that each and every one of us in the church of God has equal dignity, equal worth, an equal voice, equal standing. And we should be treated that way. Men and women, we are called to treat each other that way. And why not start to treat our city that way? In a resume-addicted city, what would it be like if the people with no resumes living in the tents there every week had a small group from our church go out and feed them coffee and muffins or food? What if regularly those people there felt like we people here loved them so much that we felt like their family and they got new socks from us regularly and new underwear. What if every small group was involved in just going out on Sunday afternoon and making the love of Jesus known to the citizens who are most neglected, oppressed, and marginalized? Wouldn't that be beautiful? What, what if we came together and said, no person who has trouble walking need be, ba be banished from the upper halls and we brought our money together and built an elevator. It costs a lot of money, that sucker. It's tripled or quadrupled since we first put in the elevator shaft. What if we were able to do that and have full access to this building for everybody? We're fellow citizens. We're members of the household of God. We're family members. What if, men and women, there was such beautiful harmony in us the people would walk in and go, they don't even notice what color I am. They don't even notice my accent. People welcome me like I'm their brother, like I'm their sister, like I'm their niece. And this is the first time I... Wouldn't that be incredible? I, uh, I think we have some ways to go. I remember years ago, uh, way before COVID, we were playing floor hockey, and I heard a comment behind me by a bunch of people, oh, floor hockey, so this is where the white guys hang out. Excuse me? And then when George Floyd happened, I remember talking to some of the black members of our community, and I said, how have you felt here? And they felt, well, you know, we felt pretty welcomed at a certain level, but then at the deeper level, we oftentimes feel like we get excluded. I said, really? And one guy said, yeah, I mean, it's as simple as most of my small group went out for bubble tea, but because I'm black, they assumed I didn't like bubble tea, so I didn't get invited. I said, you didn't get invited to bubble tea? No. 
I said, do you like bubble tea? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I don't know either. So I'm telling the story to one of my interns who happens to be Asian, and he's looking at me, and I'm telling him this story, and then a bunch of uh, people from our staff team are walking out. It's sort of lunchtime, and he says, I got to go. I said, where are you going? He said, uh, actually, for bubble tea. <laughs> and I look, and it's all Asians. And he said, are you coming? I said, I haven't been invited. And he just kind of looks at me because the irony of it. And so I said, hey, guys, can I come for bubble tea? And the staff who are Asian, they didn't mean to exclude me. They said, do you like bubble tea? I said, I don't know. <laughs> we didn't think you'd know. Don't assume they won't know. What would it be like if the two majority cultures of our church, white and Asian, started to say, we're going to open up our coffee groups to invite people who are not part of our culture? What if the insularity that naturally seems to come in this city that calls itself totally multicultural but lives in little pools of insular homogeneity way too often culturally really begins to break down. Wouldn't people go, there's a church where if you walk in, you get invited. What if when you walk out, people say, oh, that's the church that looks like Jesus? Because don't you know that the temple is just pointing to someone. And his name is Jesus. He is the temple. He is our head. As we build this temple of unity and beauty, we bear witness to the world that the love of Jesus is here. Let us be so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and grace and your love. Help us to reflect that to the city. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a song of response. I know some of you are looking at this new mic and going, it seems to be awfully close to falling off. It's okay. It's fine. I'm going to fix it when we go down. You rise and let's sing a song of response.